This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. Alrighty guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal cast. This one's going to be something we touch on periodically, and especially granted the way that the magic economy has changed over the last year, courtesy of... COVID, I uh, thought it was worth revisiting, and that is what vendors do when the secondary market is a little bit more uncertain or volatile, basically. Uh, particularly, obviously, there's the old standbys of what you're going to do, but also when reserve list spikes happen and how people deal with that and parsing out what's real, what's not. So with that, let's get it taken away. Yep. So right now, uh, we're in an interesting time. Uh, we go back and we look at you know the financial market financial landscape for the last couple months and we see we see a lot of steady ebb and flow like we would expect you get a new set you get new commander product and you have a lot of cards float because of that up down sideways etc but what's been taking center stage a little bit longer with a little more prominence and basically uh puts the everything else to shame is what's going on with not just the reserve list but the collectible era of market which is basically right now everything from revised and earlier you know, you, you check stocks, you check the daily, you check the weekly, and that's basically all you're going to see. Discounting, like I said, that brand new stuff. When a set releases and people are repricing, you know, stuff like that will jockey. And it's interesting to see the difference between the open market, TCG player, eBay, and the vendor market, the closed market, and how different things react, and really what some of the drivers are in that in, in each of those spaces and there was a, a topic of conversation in, in one of our discords about how and why vendor pricing often aligns with the open market for some things not everything but a lot and it kind of circles around a lot of the points we're going to make here so when it comes to reserveless stuff or just random spikes in general for the most part I don't really expect large vendors to follow in the early few days of a spike not while they were have products not while they were bought out because they're a vendor they have their consumers their customer base and they make decisions based on that and that's my experience from internal and then watching externally you know i think that's kind of been the case for the most part with a lot of vendors that I've worked with as well. You know, some of the few exceptions are when cards like Oro or Oko uh, kind of where yeah. it gets out that they're being banned the following Monday, right? And the vendors are like, well, we're going to pick all of these up. Uh, because yes, the market's volatile, but they're also going to pay less money for it. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing is when you see cards like the Grim Feast spike to $10, most vendors look at that and are like, no, I'll give you two. Yeah. Because it'll probably settle at four. But then you have vendors like Cart Kingdom, where their buy list is based on an algorithm. And just because Juxtapose is $150 on TCG Player, which is not a real price, doesn't mean that they're not going to flex their buy list number a little bit to, I believe it was $20 when I finally sold all of the ones I could kill their buy list with yeah. to them. And those are those vendors kind of fall in the category of too big to fail. I mean, they're not really, obviously, but 
when you look at your star cities and your card kingdoms, they're a lot more prone to just letting the algorithm run and they'll either approve or deny buys, whatever. Whereas when you go to a GP, you're not going to be able to take that juxtapose to someone and say, hey, this is this is $150 on TCG player. How about you give me 100 right? Because, you know, 65% is about your buy list. That's not going to happen. And I think that a lot of times, you know, those not real spikes are what vendors pay attention to. Whereas you see a surge on Volcanic Island, obviously that's a real card. That's something they're going to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for, you know, as a vendor to determine, all right, well, this is a real card. This is not, and not in terms of counterfeit, obviously, but in terms of this is a card that sees play. Yeah, it'll hold, it has real demand. Yeah. And that's, you know, when we touched on the real versus fake spikes during the reserve list spike a few episodes ago, and we had three cards to pick out each, that's the kind of thing that you need to be mindful of. And you'll see some vendors that really are mindful of that, and they'll be like, no, I'm not going to give you $100 for your juxtapose. I'm not even going to give you 50 Yep. Like, that's just not worth it. One, it's not reserve list. But just as an example of something that you'd see during that. And then you'll see, you know, and I'm sure same for you, those vendors... Just keep on trucking. You yep. know, they have their market, modern, EDH, popper, even in some cases for foils and stuff like that. There's a couple shops local to here that run popper, and their stock of common foils is insane because they stick to their market. Mm-hmm. And one thing I have seen is some vendors, unfortunately, taking advantage of the LGS. And when these spikes happen, yeah, they're not going to like dump 30 copies of i don't know grim feast on them when grim feast is 10 bucks but they'll definitely go in and throw three or four at them for six to seven dollars each yeah and then the lgs ends up getting a little bit more hosed on it but and there are a lot of interesting points you hit on here at a very high level and this is kind of what i believe a lot of people are missing and it's not just that vendors look at the open market in regards to pricing and see what's going on as data points. They're also looking at their own internal data points, and that's why you will see vendors, yes and no cards that have a lot of that you know, recent popularity behind them. Somebody like Card Kingdom has a pretty wide audience compared to some other vendors, and that's kind of a brand recognition thing. So they can buy those cards at a higher price and expect to resell them because of that recognition. They know what their customers are looking for. And it's kind of an interesting thought. And the more I I thought about this topic over the weekend, the more I realized that a lot of what we're dancing around is kind of like marketing and advertising theory here. And not a lot of people get to practice this. And it's interesting to see how that kind of coincides with the open market and the closed market. And they mentioned those prices aligning. And that is really based on the consumer profile. And the people that shop at TCG Player are the ones that really control the prices. It's not the vendor. You can list yeah. the card up there for whatever you want, but if nobody's buying it, you don't control the price at which it sells. It's the person that's going to purchase that. So you have to price it higher or lower to meet that demand. And that's why you see cards repriced all the time. It's based on the uh, algorithms and data points that tell the, the vendor, hey, these cards need to be repriced because they're not selling, or we sold X copy of this, it hit a threshold, and we need to uh, up price before we restock. And you see that yeah. oftentimes during large events that are camera events, or um, 
set releases where somebody will list a card for what they think is appropriate. The player hive mind says, no, that's way too cheap. They buy them out and they don't restock for a day and then they restock at a higher price. Well, their tripwire was was hit and now they took that time to recalibrate and say, okay, what is the rest of the vendor sphere doing? And what are like the actual vendors on TCG player doing? And they'll take those data points into uh, account when they, when they do something like that. But this market segmentation and the consumer profile is really important. Every vendor has their own customer base, and that's why they're able to charge what they are for the for their various cards. Star City Games can charge more for the cards on their site because the consumer profile that they have is willing to pay that extra charge. Troll and Toad is very much an EDH site. That That's why they built their stock the way they have over the last few years. That's their consumer profile. Card Kingdom's consumer profile is a little more like the open market, and that's why they just cast this huge net with a really decent buy percentage because of that. And it's all part of like the sales funnel and everything else and how that churns. And that plays really well into what we're seeing. And I think it's really interesting too that right now is kind of a time where a lot of those GP vendors that operated primarily at GPs but then supplementally on TCG have had to shift that business model. Yeah. Because there's no GPs. So you can't have the booth that like, well, they're stacked with foils. Because those foils don't move unless people can see the clouding. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, I'm personally, I'm not going to buy a whole lot of star foils unless I can see them, unless it's like, you know, well, this is my pick. I guess I'll pick a few up. But those places have had to shift their perspective now. And that's kind of why we wanted to touch on this, because it is such a different time where you may have to change your market segment. You may not have your brick and mortar LGS that can be open and cater to your locals. So you're kind of having to go back to the primary staples mm-hmm. if you're not a troll and toad that can focus on EDH and just be EDH all day, every day. Yeah. If you're not one of those sites that has your specialty, like MTG Seattle is old school and vintage and legacy. That's all they do. Yep. The interesting thing is their buy prices are also typically better than card kingdoms on those cards when they need them really badly. I digress. Good to know that. But I think that's part of what's so interesting about this, especially now, is you have these titans of the industry and Troll and Channel and Card Kingdom and Star City that do have these established, carved-out markets. And then you have these titans of the GP scene, like MTG95 or Tails or Moose Loot or people like that. Yeah. Yeah, Pink Bunny that all of a sudden can't be known for their Grand Prix identity anymore and have to establish their gen- identity on TCG player. Yep. So they've had to kind of churn some of that inventory maybe a little bit quicker than they may have wanted to because, look, you can charge more for those cards at a Grand Prix because window shopping has a price. So if you're a foiled vendor, yeah, you charge more because where else are you going to find these foils that you can look at them? Yep. Sure. And... That's something that I think a lot of vendors and a lot of LGSs have had to come with, you know, terms with the harsh reality that yeah. if you don't have those eyes on your booth or on your cases in your store, you have to change that. Yep. And I think it's going to be interesting to see as, you know, obviously EDH and the reserve list are thriving and that's going to continue because camera matches happen. But as things shift, and we start to get more in-paper events, if they're going to continue with the same business models they've adapted to, 
or if they're going to go back to their old identities. Yeah. Because obviously when it's volatile, you either stay with what you know or you change to be what's liquid at the time. And I think it'll be interesting to see what happens when it stabilizes again. Because this isn't like a reserveless spike like we see every year. Like, we do. That's a fact. This is like an actual large-scale shift. At least it feels like it to me and how MTG Finance works over the last year. I don't yeah. know if it feels like that to you. Um, Similar but different. I think it's the collector shift. And that's why I think this is a little more important of a topic because you look at these large vendors in the space and those that have brand recognition and a brand identity, people that you could say, okay, when I look at, like I said before I mentioned Star City in regards to their prices, but when you think of Star City, they're also huge uh, huge for Constructed because they have yeah. their own tournament series, right? CFB, yeah. similarly, they, they host, they did all the GP and Magic Mythic, no, Magic Fest ah, hosting for the last couple of years, so they are synonymous with Constructed level events, right? So that's their brand identity. Card Kingdom basically serves the game. That that's their brand. If you if you need something you can't find it or you know buy price percentage whatever, it's Card Kingdom. Trolls got the EDH market, uh, and this is all within uh, the United States. And this brand identity. If you want like high quality, high end slabbed old school cards, ABU's your place to go. These are all brand identities. And yeah. when you see a lot of these vendors just keep up with what's going on in regards to the reserve list and iconic cards then it feels a little more like the collectible market is finally starting to show up when you look at stocks and you see for the you know the third or the fourth day in the row in a row stang is from legends is on the rise that seems a little more like gaming things but at the same time it's like okay stang didn't get a reprint it has a legends print is this collectors just moving in and trying to gobble up anything in that old space with in that in that era and while I'm trying to figure that out based on the, the data that I have, that's what it feels like to me. It feels less like a bum rush on the reserve list and more like collectors are trying to, f to figure this out. And they're, they're not going in scattershot. They're being very selective about it, but they're targeting a wider breadth of the market than I would, I would have expected them to target initially. That that that's my feeling on this, uh, you know. As, as a vendor with with my own market space and my own customer profile, am I really going to react to what's going on in that regard? I might if the demand that I'm seeing looks organic. If I have 15 stangs on my website, they're all from Legends, varying conditions, and two people buy them out, my algorithm clicks over. It says, okay, you sold 15 stangs for this price this but in the last 30 days you sold zero so your buy list price isn't going to move that much i'm okay with that as a vendor why because my consumer profile to date tells me that this is not a real card for the market that i serve and this is the important part and this is why i mentioned before i was going to touch on repricing cards it's about that consumer profile when you reprice cards and you adjust your buy list and you have your consumer profile you are working with that when the open market comes in and they say, hey, like organically, we're just going to buy out a bunch of this stuff from you, you reprice the organic market because that actual demand is there. Similarly, because of these open market spaces, TCG Player, eBay, where people can price to whatever they want, when the open market stabilizes on a price on a card and you're well over that, you're not selling your cards to your customer base. 
the open market hasn't come in to hit it yet, then you have to start repricing down and that's where you kind of get that cohesion on a price of a card. And that's when you really know that something is kind of true to price and true to form. It's on buy list for a reasonable amount. The vendor or the closed market and the open market have kind of coalesced down to that one or uh, a similar price and everything just kind of floats along. Maybe there's a little more vendor pressure on it in regards to buy lists. They're being more aggressive because they know they can move it. Uh, in the case of some reserve list stuff that overlaps into EDH or constructed in uh, the case of Star City with like dual lands, you know, uh, Mox Diamonds, LED, stuff like that, they might put a little more pressure on it because they need it for their constructed circuit. That's when you know things are real. That's when the vendor market is really kind of getting behind this stuff. That's when consumer profiles and shifted and say, okay, we actually want these cards. This is real demand. You need to start updating. You need to start changing. And we're getting there with stuff like this. We're not quite there. And to me, that's kind of the big disconnect between looking at the open market, the closed market, and why this topic in and of itself is kind of important. Why you don't see vendors really changing in times of volatility. Some do. Like you mentioned, CK, they absolutely adjust. Why? Because... They were most likely bought out. The demand they had, they thought was real enough that they could up their buy list, go fish, and then out it again. Yeah. And I think part of it too is, you know, vendors at that level, like your card kingdoms and your star cities, they don't chase spikes. They make money by making their margins. So they don't care Yeah. if a card gets bought out and they were selling it for five and all of a sudden it's 50. They paid two bucks for their copies. Yeah. Great. If you want to sell them, sell them. Exactly. If you want to sell them back to us when our buy price is higher, fine. We'll sell them for higher. Yeah. And I think that's another interesting thing about that is that those vendors that do kind of are more flexible with these spikes that may have such a broad customer profile that it's almost too much information that they can't parse. Is this real? Is it not? Because I have to believe at some point over the last six months, and I'm going to keep harping on this as an example, someone bought a Legends juxtaposed from Card Kingdom. Yeah. Just because that's where it was, mm-hmm. you know? And they may not have that information. So they're going to chase their margins. They're not going to chase the spikes like some smaller backpackers may do. And that's fine. But that's kind of what you see. Yes. Is, you know, hey, uh, we don't care. They may, you know, they do stage their sales, I believe. Card Kingdom does, where you can only get so many of each rare or whatever. Eight at a time. Those, like that, yeah. yeah, same with Abu. But an algorithm controls their pricing. So they're not going to just immediately knock it up to 50 bucks. They're just going to go for it. And that's, you know, when you touch on client profiles and stuff, that's something to keep in mind with them, especially is, you know, their client profile is everyone. We just want to sell cards. Yep. And that makes them a little bit more resilient to the volatility. But it also means they're operating on narrower margins. Because you may have gotten that same card for $2 yourself, and you just find out, oh, all of a sudden it's worth 50 Great, I'm going to throw it up. We'll throw it for 40 bucks, and it'll sell right away. Mm-hmm. Well, they're operating on the margin of paying $2 for that card and selling it for 5 So you may have a little bit more variance on your end as a smaller vendor than they do. Just because, again, they're at that point where they're, like, too big. Yes. The Walmart level. Yep. Because that's, that, 
think that's a good analogy. That's basically where Star City, Car Kingdom, all those guys are. Yeah, they are yeah. the WalMarts of our industry. Yeah, you work on you work on filling your holes, making your profit margins, and you do not need to react to the open market and what's going on there unless it actually is impacting you. And you like I, we mentioned earlier, that happens when there's you know paper camera magic and people are like, all right, I need to play this deck. Give me what you got. And then yeah. organic demand does drive that spike, but at the same time, it's driving it on the open market as well. It's real. It's not just somebody coming in and buying out all the pyramids, you know. So, I I do want to touch on one thing as an example of Absolutely. some failings of that format. Uh, when High Tide won the Star City Open, you could literally flip from eBay to Star City's buy list and profit back and forth just from buying buy it now auctions because while it was on camera that whole weekend yep. and the demand on star city's website drove it star city's price was going through the roof because they just couldn't keep it in mm -hmm. and more and more people were wishlisting it so you were able to buy it now submit a buy list to star city immediately for more than you paid and then just keep doing that as the buy it now price went up because their buy price went up as well so that's one inefficiency that you can exploit in times like this if you're good and lucky yeah that also uh actually relies on a bit of automation as well we mentioned that throughout throughout this episode and the the little anecdote that i have is i was watching pro tour dark dark ascension which kibler won and Huntmaster hey. of the fells we going into that weekend we were very cautious about that card at troll and we did mm -hmm. not list per usual our, our, our recommended quantity, which is all. And we held uh, per our magic specialist. And I've defined those rules uh, in a quick hits episode if you want to go back and listen to that. It's on our Patreon. And that was the correct call to make. From the minute that Pro Tour started to the minute that Pro Tour ended, the price of Huntmaster of the Fells went up every time it went out of stock, which was every time it, shortly after it went back into stock on that website. And I believe we released them somewhere between like 8 and 16 at a time. And our magic specialist was just there all weekend, just ticking up the price. And I think eventually that card must have hit close to 50 or some odd dollars, I think. Yeah. What if we had the historics on it? I think it was around then. And that, that, that was just one of those times where much like the high tide and for instance you had a car that was just spiking rapidly over time that you could just watch tick up and up and up and up and if we turned in that instance because we had held quantity and we just didn't shotgun it all to the website the buy list number on it wasn't going to move that much on troll until we got towards the end of our stock and then we we need the restock so we up the buy price historics do not hit on this card it just kind of floats into mtg stocks at about twenty dollars yeah, but that weekend and the following was just insane for that card, because of how well it performed and how well it beat Delver, which was the deck to beat going into that and coming even coming out of that event, kind of took, still to maintain its foothold in the format. So there are times where vendors do react to the open market, and in those instances, it's generally because the open market demand has kind of come over and said like, "All right, we need this," and then yeah. there you have it. The times of volatility for a vendor generally don't rock the boat until that open market consumer profile rolls in there was just like okay we're real demand now we need what you yeah, have please this is what we're us. doing yep and that's it 
you know, if two or people go in and shake up a vendor and just buy out uh, one card, two cards, whatever, it doesn't, generally speaking, doesn't matter to them because their data points will tell them that, hey, this was not organic demand. It was bought in chunks by a small amount, small number of people. Our sales over the last X amount of time did not warrant raising the buy list that much. We're just going to float along like we, we, we would normally. There's no reason to just rocket this thing. Important and again, we wanted to do it because this is while yes, we've touched on it before. Things over the last year have been unique to say the least with the magic economy. So well, it's also what we're here for. You know, not a lot of people yeah. speak from the vendor perspective, and not a lot of people work in sales, advertising, or marketing deep enough to to really dig into consumer profiles and how that yeah. actually drives market spaces and what overlap demand can do and what it doesn't do. And like I said, it was a conversation I was having in one of our discords last week where somebody said it seems a little um, like kind of clandestine that vendor prices would match open market. And as I thought on that over the weekend, I was like, okay, that's because there's not a good enough understanding of what actually goes into price drivers. And the idea that vendors be them in the closed market or the open market are the ones that actually set prices and drive that, that's kind of incorrect thinking. It's always the buyers. Because if nobody's buying your card, you have to reprice it down. And that's the consumer market telling you you're wrong. Yeah. And until you're right, you don't sell anything. So yeah, it kind of is what it is in that regard. Picks? Yes. All right. I've gone first like the last three weeks in a row, so you can go first. I'll go. All right. So this one, and this is, again, going to be on the uh, good old tribal train that we've been on lately. This one, though, is not courtesy of Dungeons & Dragons. This one is courtesy of Time Spiral Revisited, and it is not Felon of Havenwood. But it is a fungus lord. Spore crown thalid foils from Dominaria. And that is because there is a fungus among us in the entire tribe. Mycologist, all that stuff is getting reprinted in Time Spiral, revisited, remastered. Time Spiral 2 Electric Boogaloo. So why? Well, because it's a lord. Yes. It's a lord that is in a foil prior to Pringle's foils. It was still not great, but it was better than our current foils. It's also really not that much. They're sitting at about 50 cents right now. And fungi are one of those tribes that it seems a little bit meme but it's one of those things that casual players love because it's a dice factory. Yeah. People love dice factories it, for some reason. Yeah, it goes doubling season and parallel lives and all that stuff. It just kind of like grooves... And uh, Vorinclex also helps support the original Thalids when you're putting counters on them. You're going to double, like... Yep. Yeah. It's it's just a really good green tribe or green X tribe that's fun. As far as your generals go, there's a few choices you can go for. You can even just go generic. I just use this for the colors. And Sport Crown Thalid, it checks in at a grizzly bear with upside. Two mana, two, two. Each other creature so unfortunately not itself yeah that's a fungus or sapperling which is important because oh, saprolings are also too okay it does so it gets literally everything from the thalid tribe you get your fungi like fungosaur you get your saprolings 
So this is one of those grizzly bears with upside that's also a versatile lord because it hits multiple tribe types. And I think that timeline-wise, what you're looking at is probably two to three months after the release of Time Spiral, Return to Time Spiral. And after that, I would expect this to be like a 2 to $3 foil. So it's not going to be a huge return. But if you look at quantity of four or more on TCG Player, you see that it very quickly gets to be $2 within the first page. And there's only 11 of those compared to 86 total listings. Now, before the time spiral spoilers, this was at about 140. I love Lords. I've been tracking them for a while because, as you've seen me picking them, I think they're great right now. So we're starting to see a little bit of this supply dry up. And I think that you may see it a little bit beforehand, but just wanted to at least put it out there for people. I think it's a solid choice. Again, two to three months afterwards, and realistically, it's going to be another one of those cards that rather than buy list, you're probably going to have to trade out of. Yeah. One of the downsides that I'll warn people about this is that, you know, frankly, if this pops, it's going to be an EDH card. It's probably not going to be something that the price is going to be driven by a lot of casual kitchen table players playing Type X, where they're running four of these in their casual deck. So you may not want to go too deep on it, maybe 10 to 15, just to have your copies there. Mm -hmm. But I think that it's a very, very solid EDH pickup in a world of Return to Time Spiral. Yeah. No, it's interesting, and I, and I like it. I didn't realize that it did saplings. I just It's a thalid, so it does fungus in my mind. And I brought up the yeah. generals that it's most uh, commonly played with. And you have, like, Thelon at number one, which is I guess is kind of like whatever, because it's also a fungus lord. But then you have, like, Vertiloth the Ancient and Rith the Awakener and Gave, which are, uh, generally speaking, a little more popular overall as notable cards go um, compared yeah. to Thelon. But... I was looking at Namada, which is just... It's also a Saperling Lord. So I'll bring this back up. And Namada is a general. It could be in the 99, etc. So it's just like, slowly over time, the Saperling tribe gets a little more love. I don't think they like doing stuff with Thalids for whatever reason. Neither here nor there. Yeah, I don't understand that either, honestly. But, but hey... hey. Yeah, as far as saplings go, that's I'd have to I'd have to say it's probably one of the most underserved green tribes that still gets uh, a bone every now and again. And if there's going to be a larger price driver than the reprints in Time Spiral, it's going to be something that deals with saplings. And you know, for fifty to sixty cents a pop, you know, why not? Dominaria yeah. wasn't that long ago, but at the same time, when I was filtering on TCG Player, there are fewer light play copies than there are near mint copies for whatever reason so it de definitely seems like supply is dwindling on this card and it's not a bad place to be to just have a couple a couple sets of as far as casual edh goes you know we've been doing tribes for a while for a reason right and you know, now that squirrels are an aggressive tribe because they finally got support that kind of leaves thalids and i'm sure like um literally enchantresses yeah as the last two green tribes or something like that. I'm sure somebody will correct me that, that are really underserved, but I don't know. I, I think it's a fine longer term pick. Absolutely. Yeah. Why was it in Dominaria besides Slimefoot? 
Um, I have Paradox Haze after amusing to myself about why Sporkrat Doll was in Dominaria. Um, Paradox Haze is something I've been watching for like a month or two. I love no. this card. Um, yeah, I forgot it was a thing because it's from Time Spiral and it really only helped with um, Suspend, which I'll, I'll, I'll mention later. So this is the price graph for the last uh, seven, eight months, and you'll see it's pretty steady up until about call time, which is kind of surprising considering what happened in the interim. Um, so Paradox Haze, what are we looking at for this card? Well, it, uh, it does a lot of interesting things because it interacts with a lot of interesting upkeep triggers across the game. And right now you can have upwards of three per turn thanks to, let me bring this card up in case we forgot about it, Sphinx of the Second Sun, which was in Commander Legends. Sphinx of the yep. Second Sun, 6-6 uh, six, six for 8, flying at the beginning of your pre-combat main phase. You gain an additional beginning phase after this phase, and the beginning phase includes upkeep. So with Paradox Ace and Sphinx, you can get at least three upkeeps per turn. Right? So you can start actually looking to abuse your upkeep now because you can trigger three times. And the nice part about this card is that there's really no one strategy that this speaks to. This speaks to everything, everything. And, yeah. I'll, and I'll bring up stocks for this card. And you can see there's Joyra, which is going to be Suspend, Braids, which is kind of Pillow Forte, uh, Coma, Send Triplets, Sisse, etc. Like this card is all over the place, and that's awesome. So super broad appeal. So where are we seeing it? As I said, basically upkeep trigger tribal or five color pile. And five color pile can be planeswalkers, it could be gods, it could be shrines. There's no consistent general and there's no consistent theme. And that's what I kind of like about this because nothing binds you to control, combo, or group hug. So again, super appealing for this card. It's because it doesn't pigeonhole you. You can play something like Shrines and double, triple, triple trigger them. You can play uh, Essica from Call Time. Not yeah. for the front part, but uh, Essica, God of the Tree. You play it for the back side, the five color uh, side, the planar bridge, because the upkeep trigger allows you to dump a permanent into play, and that, that's where you go get your gods or your planeswalkers. Or if you're kind of the kind of person like the Scarab God, you got that train to run as well, because both of these Paradox Ace and Sphinx are both blue, so if it's everywhere it super awesome now sphinx of the second sun was released in november of 2020 so hearkening back to like a minute ago when i said what happened between july and now why was surprising so right we've been able to have three upkeeps three since november of 2020 and i added haze to my list of cards to watch shortly thereafter but even after the Commander Clash video, two months later in January, Hayes did nothing. It took Call Time and Essica with a little bit of Cosma, Cosmo Serpent, to really get things going. So getting in now puts you ahead of the crowd as people search for what they want to be doing with their Call Time cards and should allow you to cash out sometime in the next six months to buy a list. Uh, the delta between TCG Market and CK's cash offer isn't fantastic. It pretty much is like in that 65 to 75% range, depending on where you're buying. But when I picked this card and I was reading through this, you could immediately arbitrage to CK for credit profit. So, you know, the gap's closing. Um, and in the amount of time I've been watching this in the two months, a CK's buy list has increased 84% 
from a dollar fifty up to two seventy five when I wrote this. They were buying thirty four in December. They're buying eighty four now. On TCG, there were uh, ninety nine listed, and as of writing this, there were fifty. So the market's just kind of drying up over time. Uh, so we're going to. Con Moreover, the reason another reason I like this is I keep triggers span the game. We keep getting new and interesting ones. They've been leaning into it recently, so this is kind of like a, the birthing pod paradox where we're only going to get better cards over time. So getting in earlier is best. Obviously, we missed this years ago, but now that we can triple trigger at least, I like being here now. Now, note this is a card from Time Spiral. We are currently in the middle of spoilers for Time Spiral, and I do not believe this has been crunched out of the set officially. I haven't seen the document. So, as of writing this and recording this, this card has not been crunched out, I believe, and has not been spoiled. But my belief is that we will not get a reprint of this card unless this set relies very heavily on Suspend, like I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Right now, it's basically Ancestral Visions and... Uh, one other card that has suspend natively and then delay is getting a reprint as of this writing so I could be wrong but as of this writing I do not believe we will see a reprint of this card because I do not think we're going to be in a limited environment that it will rely heavily on suspend as it was only a mechanic and please correct me if I'm wrong in time spiral it was not in future sight and it was not in planar chaos no I think that's right I think it was just time spiral okay because clock the, spinning all that stuff was just oh wait no uh, Joyra and Future Sight but okay. I think she was the only card yeah, in Future Sight that the had. only one I could think of that kind of bounced against this but then I realized I was wrong was Calciderm the Blastoderm color shift to white but it didn't have fading vanishing. vanishing which is the exact same thing and it's not suspend so yeah. I like Paradox Ace for the short term if you want to sit on it for about a year if that's probably uh, the choice place for this if you want to churn it about just to, to free up some space and some capital and make a little bit of gain six months I think like I said th this this card exists in, with alongside splinter twin and birthing pot which is just value will accrue natively over time at various aspects of the game be it you know creatures on the curve with birthing pod ETB triggers with splinter twin and upkeep triggers with paradoxes and I'm fine being in on this card I think it's also one of those things that's the reprint equity is pretty low. There's not a big chance that they're going to reprint it in a set unless it's a commander reprint, which is going to be a small print run. And, and if they missed oh. kind of their opportunity to do that with Olaro, which triggers from your command zone in your equity. Yep. And is in color. It would have been great. Exactly. Uh, and we had commander legends and didn't get anything like this. So I think that's good, and I think like you touched on, it's one of those cards that kind of spans the gamut of casual to competitive. Uh, people just like triggers and stacking stuff similar to Dice Factories. They love tracking yep. dozens of things at once so that everyone's just like sitting there watching them twiddle their thumbs trying to figure it out. Well, And I think that as more and more eyes get drawn to the game in general, Cards like this get better yes. because they do span the gamut. And it's something that you can pick up as a casual player and revisit as a more competitive player. And mm -hmm. it still has validity there. So. Yeah. The interesting thing is it's an enchant player. It's not just a regular enchantment. So if you're playing a group game and somebody just has a general like Braid's Conjurer Adept, which I, I brought up and I had on the right page and I'll bring it up again, which is kind of pillow yeah. 40, you can just enchant the Braid's player 
or yourself and double the the braids triggers there and you you yep. it becomes this kind of weird political card as well and it just does so much more than you might think initially when you read it and so like i said i've only been watching it for about two months and it's just kind of impressed me overall that we're now just seeing the spike and we're able to get in ahead of what's probably going to be realistic organic demand yeah and i think it's also interesting that the foil uh is a 10x multiplier from this era for an edh card which is interesting because some of the cards from like the shards block and Lorwyn block that are very much edh cards mm -hmm. don't have a multiplier that high no so I, this is one where like me personally i would absolutely get in on the foil but i wouldn't recommend other people do just because it already has such a high multiplier that unless something very niche and very specific happens I don't see that foil multiplier going much higher. No. Well, the, the Speaking about the foil, there is a mystery booster print of this that is in foil, which, to my knowledge, did not impact... Yeah, the market foil just stays the course. Yeah. You know, I'll zoom in a little bit more. It just stays the course, and the the price graph for that basically trends the, the non-foil set printing. Yeah, the... That little bit of extra juice did not do much to this card and, and, and neither printing it. And that overall, again, just helps cement the fact that this is a card that is eminently usable. It's going to take a, a little more time, not a lot, before you're able to get out at a profit. And the longer you sit on this, the better it's going to be. Yeah. So that's where I am. And I think that is going to be it for us this week. So thank you for tuning in. You know, as always, we are at MTG Cabalcast on Twitter if you would like to reach us. Otherwise, you can find us at, at MTG Cabalcast on Facebook, Patreon, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Audible, Apple Podcasts. Yep. And I am at Halt I am Reptar on Twitter. You are? At Thirsty Sizzler. And we'll see you next week. Yeah.